This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This is a science podcast for September 2nd, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up this week, we have a feature story on attempts to use environmental DNA. This is free-floating DNA in soil, water, or air to help locate the remains of missing in action soldiers. Also this week, researcher Nora Zanoni talks about indoor chemistry. It's not just cleaning chemicals and gas stoves we need to think about. People themselves contribute their own chemicals and their own reactions to the air we breathe. And in a sponsored segment from our custom publishing office, director of custom publishing, Sean Sanders, chats with Bernadetto Morelli from MIT about his research into using biopolymers to prolong the life of foods. This week, we have something a little special for our news segment. Former news intern, now freelance science writer, Tess Josie, wrote a feature story on attempts to use environmental DNA to help locate human remains from missing in action soldiers. I talked with her about her story and caught up with some of the sources she met in the course of her reporting. So in addition to Tess from the news team, we're also going to hear from Bridget Liddell, a researcher from the University of Wisconsin, and Kirsten Meyer-Kaiser, a marine biologist from Woods Hole. Both of these researchers have been working to test the idea that eDNA can be used to locate human remains underwater. We'll start with my conversation with Tess, now a freelance science writer based in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Tess. Hi, Sarah. This feature is about finding lost people who died in action, missing in action by the U.S. government and then also scientists who are interested in this project for their own reason and also kind of collaborating on the science with the government. Why does the government partner with so many different organizations to help with their recovery efforts? In 2015, the Department of Defense revamped their entire MIA search and accounting process. They created a new agency called the DPAA, which is the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. And as part of that sort of reorganization and revamp, Congress gave the DPAA permission to partner with outside groups to better accomplish this gargantuan goal. Like there are over 80,000 MIAs still missing from past conflicts. 
and more human power, more brain power, and more creative problem solvers that sort of exist outside the walls of the U.S. government and potentially within the walls of academia. All those things are tools to help accomplish the goal. Let's talk about some of the tools that are being deployed now that academics and these public-private partnerships are involved in the search for missing in action soldiers. One is environmental DNA, also known as eDNA. And this has been used before for more like ecology research. Can you talk a little bit about how it's been used in the past? eDNA is really widely and extensively used to monitor the globe's oceans and other waterways for aquatic species. So from a bottle of seawater, researchers can take that sample from let's say, the Monterey Bay, go back to the lab, extract the DNA from that water, and they can detect one species of interest or potentially many species of interest to get an idea of what sea life are swimming in those waters. So it's a really powerful way to take stock of what is in the water without actually having to catch those critters or, you know, potentially kill them. Why might this be useful for uh, the recovery of soldiers missing in action? About half, so around 40,000 of all known MIA cases are thought to be lost at sea. With potential water losses, there's a lot of work that goes into locating the potential site. And then a lot of times a huge team will be assembled. All this equipment will be brought in, you know, a huge boat. And then they have to send people and equipment down to start to begin the excavation. And oftentimes those underwater excavations have to be tabled in the middle of the dig for staffing constraints, other logistical issues. Now we're going to turn to one of Tess's sources for this story, Kirsten Meyer-Kaiser. She's a marine biologist from Woods Hole. She's participating in this research to figure out if eDNA can help with MIA recovery. She described to me just what makes this such a difficult process to begin with. The search for lost service members underwater is time-consuming and labor-intensive. It goes in several phases. There's, you know, phase one of just locating a site like, oh my gosh, there's a plane on the seafloor here. It looks like it's from World War II. This might be something to a phase two of trying to get a handle on what exactly this site is. There's a lot of imagery, photogrammetry, mapping involved in a stage two investigation. And then a stage three is the actual excavation where you're going in with a team of divers to painstakingly grid square by grid square excavate the site, sieve all of the sediment, and try to come up with any remains that might be at that site. So it's a very long, labor-intensive process. Once you open up the ocean floor, once you open up an archaeological site, you're introducing potential elements into whatever might be located within that site that could compromise your ability to fully complete the excavation. And then the goal, of course, is to identify whatever remains might be down there. Okay, so this is where eDNA would come in? The idea is that researchers would be able to take a sample of seawater or sediment from the ocean floor and process that water or sediment and detect human DNA and use that as a check to say, yes, there indeed are remains at this site. 
And so that would give researchers assurance that if they were to do a dig there, that they would find remains. But we wouldn't know who it was from the DNA. The DNA is just a yes, no? At this stage, that's correct. I should say that this project is very much still in the testing phase. There's a lot of hope and reasons to hope that the researchers have that this will work. What are some of the questions that the researchers have about this approach? DNA behaves very differently in different environments. If remains have sat on the ocean floor for, let's say, 80 years in somewhere that's very hot, sun-soaked, those aren't always the best conditions for DNA preservation. Also, there's always with DNA the potential risk of contamination, potentially from the samplers and researchers themselves. It's such a sensitive thing. You have to be very, very clean, very, very careful. And also, um, in some of these locations, people might be swimming, tourists might be scuba diving, there might be human contamination from wastewater. So there's all these potential sources of human eDNA that aren't the target source that could mess with the detection. So I talked to Bridget Liddell from the University of Wisconsin. She has been on two of these sampling trips so far. And yeah, she's definitely worried about contamination. The biggest difference is that we ourselves are the contaminant. So being extra careful about how we're working with it, how we're diving, how clean our equipment is. I mean, it's always, always something that you're concerned about and thinking about because you never want a false positive. But this feels a lot more heightened because I'm the thing I'm looking for in a way. And so I don't want to get any of myself in a sample and cause a false positive. So there's both the concern that the DNA won't be around, it'll be washed away or degraded by the environment, or they'll be overwhelmed with DNA because people have been hanging out or even the samplers themselves are contaminating the site. And there is um, an experiment underway. So Tess, can you describe for us this multi-site study that's looking for eDNA from these wrecks for human remains? So they're testing this technique at three different geographic locations that provide sort of three different levels of temperature and salinity. One of those is in Saipan, which is a tropical island in the Pacific Ocean. It's very warm, sun-drenched, and those sites are quite shallow, like only 10 meters. Their middle temperature site is off of the coast of Palermo, Italy. And then their cold water site is near Thunder Bay in the Great Lakes. So that site is also unique because it is freshwater. At each of these geographic locations, they're also testing three different types of potential losses. One type is a confirmed loss where researchers know that there for sure are human remains. There's one site where there might be human remains, there might not be. And then one site where there's confirmed to be no human remains. How confident are the researchers that this will work and, and kind of speed up the process of recovering remains? They're cautiously optimistic. A coordinator at the DPAA who I interviewed for my story said to me that there's always a risk of critical success or catastrophic failure with <laughs> projects like this. So She's cautiously optimistic, but there's, you know, there's a risk that the project could come up empty or it could not work exactly the way that researchers envision it. But eDNA detection, the science is there and it remains just to be seen if it can be applied to this specific context and outcome. 
even if the eDNA from human remains does turn out to be pretty hard to pin down in these sites, there are other clues that the researchers are looking for. Bridget told me how that could work. Because we're sequencing the entire sample, we're also going to keep an eye on what other patterns we might be seeing in, in samples. So if there's some sort of correlation between what microbial activity is happening where we know remains are versus sites that don't have remains, it could be you know a secondary level of confirmation or something that we could use if we aren't able to detect as much human as we would like. If this succeeds and if we can actually get this to work or we can find a way that this gives us some sort of answer, you know, it would have really big impacts for a lot of people still. So Tess, have you heard from the people you talked to that this was a big motivator for getting involved in this type of research, you know, the impact? Yeah, definitely. Almost all the researchers, academic researchers that I've interviewed for this story who work on DPAA projects have expressed to me how it's some of the most rewarding work that they've done in their careers. Some of them do get to sort of interact with family members of MIAs whose cases they've worked on or who they've helped recover. And that's just extremely rewarding and I think emotional for a lot of them, which is interesting to have this emotional pull to your work. And it's something that they might not have that emotional pull for other types of research projects that they do. Kirsten from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute shared a similar feeling. She spends a lot of her time traveling the world, diving shipwrecks, sampling small animals. I care a lot about anemones that live on a random shipwreck right off of Boston. Nobody else cares about that random anemone on that shipwreck outside of Boston. I struggle sometimes with, is the information that I'm producing about our ecosystem valuable enough to justify the effort that goes into it? Obviously, if I didn't believe that this had inherent value, I wouldn't be spending my life doing it. But with the eDNA project, I have to say, I don't even have to think about that for half a second because obviously there is value in this. It feels incredibly satisfying to be able to use my skills as a scientist, my training, my previous experience, my expertise, and apply that to something that could potentially speed up our process of locating those remains and ultimately reunite family members, bringing remains home for proper burial to have the closure for those family members. I find incredible humanitarian value in this project, even though we're just at the beginning stages, and it feels very satisfying. So Tess, what was it like reporting the story? I was so surprised and grateful at how generous a lot of these families were with their time, with me, with their memories of their loved one. I mean, what this boils down to, sure, it's a science story, but this is a story about family, about memory, about wanting to know what happened to someone you love. And I understand that and I relate to that. So I was really grateful for their time and and their interests. You know, a lot of them really just want to see not only their own family member come home, but they want to see that for everyone else who's in their same shoes. What motivates the government to do this? Why do we have an agency that does this? Why are we devoting all these resources? What's behind that? So when I've asked people who do this work, like, why does the government do this? They often stress that, you know, these these service members made a sacrifice to the country 
And it's now the country's responsibility to keep the promise of leaving no man behind. Thanks, Tess. Thank you. This is fun. Tess Josie is a freelance science writer based in Madison, Wisconsin. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Don't miss my chat with Nora Zanoni on the contributions of humans to indoor air chemistry. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. We spend a lot of time inside. People living in North America or Europe spend on average about 90% of their time indoors. That means the chemicals in the air in these rooms that we occupy, from cleaning solutions to furniture to the stuff we ourselves emit, they're pretty important. On our skin, in our breath, we are constantly releasing chemicals, and they interact with chemicals in the air around us. These reactions become more important in enclosed spaces, particularly those with low ventilation. They're not all bad. Some are good. We don't want to be in a chemistry-free environment. But some of the byproducts of our field of chemicals and chemistry can be bad for us. It might even be a good idea to keep tabs on this. Unfortunately, it's not easy to measure what is happening in the air when people are in a space. We kind of make a mess. Nora Zanoni and colleagues attempted to measure some basic things about human contribution to indoor chemistry this week in science. Hi, Nora. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. I'm Thinking about what I'm breathing in and out right now pretty heavily. Okay, the focus of your paper is mostly on these things called hydroxyl radicals. Yes. We can also call it, what, OH or OH radicals? Is that okay? Yes, it's okay. Which we should definitely define. Can you talk about what, what these molecules are and maybe people might be more familiar with their role outside in outdoor air chemistry? Yeah, so the hydroxyl radical or OH radical is the most important oxidant in our atmosphere. Indeed, is the one that drives all atmospheric chemical reactions. And it's the most important during daytime because it can react with the vast majority of reactive species and it can lead to secondary organic aerosols or ozone, which can have effects on human health and climate. Among atmospheric chemists, we talk about uh, OH radical as the cleansing agent of the atmosphere. That's outdoors. Moving things inside, we do have some differences. One important thing is less sunlight. Without sunlight, we would expect to see less OH because usually it's a product of ozone and water reacting with sunlight. What else is different inside versus outside in terms of air chemistry? This is one difference between the indoor environment and the outdoor environment is the reduced sunlight. But also we have different sources and we have less ventilation, of course. 
the most important oxidant in the indoor environment is considered to be ozone. And this is usually infiltrating from the outdoors. So especially if you're living in a urban environment with high levels of ozone in our atmosphere, we will also have substantial concentration of ozone inside the indoor environment. Hydroxy radicals have been detected and measured inside, but the source of these molecules hasn't really been pinned down. Why did you think that people might be a contributing factor to hydroxy radicals in the indoor environment? So people are not just a potent source of chemicals indoors, but also they can transform these compounds by generating OH radicals from the reactions of ozone with their bioeffluence. So the compounds that they can emit through breath emissions or dermal emissions. Right. So dermal is on the skin. We have all these chemicals that we make for our skin and for our protection and just as byproducts of what we're doing. And we also breathe it in and out different chemicals. Okay. So all we got to do, right, is then just put some people in a sealed chamber with some air and see if they make uh, hydroxy radicals, right? Easy. Yeah, so <laughs> sounds like easy. It was a bit less easy than what we were thinking. What was difficult about trying to make these measurements from occupied spaces? First of all, the experiments that we have been doing were extremely controlled in the sense that we really needed the space which could be controlled, like this stainless steel chamber where the experiments occurred. Also, volunteers recruited for these experiments were following a standardized protocol during the days of experiments. So they were asked to not eat any spicy food or to wear identical clothing that were pre-washed with fragrance-free detergents. So it was important that there were not any other interfering molecule that was not directly emitted by humans. So we were focusing specifically on bioeffluence. But you definitely wanted them to wear clothes, right? Yes, yes, <laughs> definitely. Well, uh, well, it's interesting because also the level of clothing will give a different level of surface exposed to this kind of reactions. So we tested different clothing in, it, in our experiments. How many people did you put in this chamber? So we had four people, two males and two females. They were young adults, so around 25 years old. How long did they stay? They stayed about six hours. We were measuring not just what they were exhaling, but also what they were emitting from skin's reactions. And for having skin's reactions, they were exposed to ozone. So ozone was reacting with the surface of the skin. We have some skin lipids, and in particular, we have one compound, which is called squalene, which makes 50% of these skin lipids and has six double bonds. So it will react very fast with ozone and generate some secondary products that will react as well. So you have your four people in the chamber for six hours and you're adding ozone. Yes. We had this room that was very minimal furnished with the four people just sitting in the room, not doing any activity. And we had first them exposed to clean air. So air was taken from the outdoors and it was cleaned to avoid any interfering compound coming from the outdoors. And then this air was mixed with ozone during the second part of the experiment. So we had a part of the experiment without any ozone and a part with ozone. And how was that different when you added ozone into the mix? Indeed, when ozone was flowing inside the chamber, these skin reactions started by starting reaction with ozone and squalene. 
And then all these byproducts started. And also OH was formed from the alkenes reactions generated by squalene reacting with ozone. I think we should really emphasize here that this isn't a good thing or a bad thing that there are hydroxy radicals around us, that we have this uh, so-called human oxidation field. You know, we don't want to be in a chemistry-less environment, right? The OH radicals has the potential to react with any species, with any chemical species. So it's an important chemical itself because it can remove these species from the environment. But of course, it can also lead to some secondary products that might be harmful. So it's an important field to be studied to see actually what is the effect in a realistic indoor environment where more sources are present and uh, there are many interactions between different type of emissions. So how do these levels that you piped in, how much ozone you're using here in the study, compare it with what we're likely to encounter indoors? This value that we used is possible to have it if we are living in an indoor environment which is exposed to polluted outdoor air and maybe we don't have a high ventilation rate indoors. Like you were talking about like in an urban environment where there's a lot of cars around and your air exchange isn't great inside your space. Yes. It's moderate to high. Yeah, we can still have these concentrations. And the OH radicals that we found, the concentration that we found with our study, it's comparable to what we can find during daytime outdoors in some locations. So it's a substantial concentration, the one that we found for the OH radicals, only generated by four people present. This is important. How meaningful are the levels we're talking about here? Let's say in the indoors, we have... uh, more available surfaces of reactions, but also uh, we have smaller spaces. So we have less ventilation. So everything is more concentrated in the indoors, which is one of the main concern of indoor air quality and uh, human health, because all concentrations are really much higher. OH levels in this space were not super high compared with outside. But it's such an important reactant, especially in an enclosed space like this, stronger than ozone, right? It's a much more powerful oxidant. It can react with the vast majority of compounds and it's not as much as discriminating as ozone. Ozone is very selective. If we consider what we have in the indoor environment, uh, if we consider the average composition, then we 10% of these molecules can react with ozone while everything can react with OH. What if you changed how often the arrow was turned over? Would that change some of this chemistry that we're talking about? Yes, because if we have a higher ventilation rate, of course, we have a less exposure time, but also less time for having reactions happening. Of course, we could reduce all the byproducts generated also by increasing the ventilation rate. But what we use as ventilation rate, it's something that it's reproducible to real indoor environments as well. So you had um, people in the room and then very minimal furniture, right? Just chair and a table. What if there were more things in their room? Would that have an effect on this chemistry? You know, what could that do to change things if there was a couch or curtains? If we had some furnishing, if we had some textiles, these all bring a new source and a new sink of chemicals. A sink because there are surfaces where reactions can happen and a source because they can generate themselves more chemicals, which can compete, of course, to these reactions. In a realistic environment, we have so many sources and so many sinks 
it's much more complex than what we have seen. But of course, what our study aims at doing is to provide some baseline values of emissions and reactivity and uh, reactive compounds only coming from people. And these baseline values can be used in indoor chemistry models to determine what is the indoor air chemistry in an occupied environment. So that occupied is really important, right? So if there's no people in there, a lot of this stuff is not going to be happening that we're talking about. Some recent research in occupied residences have shown that even after occupancy, we can leave our fingerprint inside. We are talking about, in this case, of on-body and off-body skin lipids. And the on-body are, of course, this present of our, on our skin when we are present. So these, of course, contribute mostly to the reactions with ozone. But when we are walking in an indoor environment, we can leave skin flakes. And these can deposit on surfaces, on uh, settled dust. And even when we leave that environment, these compounds deposited can still play a role in the chemistry of the indoor environment. People leave their clothes behind, their cells behind, and the chemistry keeps going. Yes, indeed. This is something that that you study, but you also live it, right? You you live in indoor chemistry like the rest of us. What do you think about when you're buying something or you're bringing something into your house? Are you like, oh, I'm not going to bring this in. This is not good for my air chemistry. I do that, actually. <laughs> I do that. <laughs> Unfortunately, we need some stuff, but we have so many sources of chemicals indoors. Potentially in the future, the indoor environment of the future is a place with really very little furnishing and very little emissions. Do you see something like little monitors that say, oh, it looks like you're getting a lot of chemistry going on in here. You might need to turn the fans up. Yeah, it could be. Already we are monitoring CO2, CO in many places. But it's interesting also from the scenarios that we represented with the models was to see where this concentration is highest. One application could be to use these results from the simulation as mitigation strategies for uh, reducing some harmful concentration in the space. So we know, for example, that DOH radical is maximum in a part of the room, and then we can uh, have some filters in that room or so on. These can be used for designing our indoor environment. Thank you so much, Nora. Thank you very much, Sarah, for your time. Nora Zanoni is a postdoctoral researcher in the Atmospheric Chemistry Department at the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry. Up next, we have a custom segment sponsored by BII. Custom Publishing Director Sean Sanders chats with Associate Professor Bernadetto Morelli about using solubilized silk to preserve food, reduce waste, and boost food security. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this custom-sponsored interview from the Science AAAS Custom Publishing Office and brought to you by the Bioinnovation Institute. Based in Denmark, BII is an international nonprofit foundation supported by the Novo Nordisk Foundation that operates as a startup incubator to accelerate world-class life science innovation for the benefit of people and society by supporting early-stage life science startups. It is also the sponsor of the new Bioinnovation Institute and Science Prize for Innovation. My name is Sean Sanders and I'm the director and senior editor for Custom Publishing at Science. We have a special treat for you today. I get to talk with Dr. Benedetto Morelli from MIT about his fascinating research that made him the inaugural grand prize winner of the BII and Science Prize for Innovation. 
After completing his postdoctoral fellowship at Tufts University in Massachusetts, he established his first laboratory in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His research focuses on nanomanufacturing of structural biopolymers to engineer a new generation of advanced materials that can be interfaced with food and plants. Benedetto, I'm delighted to welcome you and thanks so much for making the time. Hi, Sean. It's great to be here. And let me start by thanking Science and the BII Institute. Before we learn about your research, I wanted to ask you briefly about the prize. What prompted you to apply for the BII and Science Prize for Innovation? And what did you think of your chances of winning? That's a good question. So my department head actually prompted me to the prize. He forwarded me an email where the, the prize was advertised. And I thought it was a unique opportunity because you don't find many of these prizes around. And I thought I was a well fit being both an academic and entrepreneur. But I never thought I would win it, I'll be honest. Applying to the prize is relatively simple. You just have to prepare a statement about your impact. And I, so I wrote the statement. And of course, when you do that, you have to be bold enough to think that you're going to win. But eventually, you also become very humble and you think that there are so many people applying for it. But I still wanted to do it. And also, my department had sometimes given me very good suggestion, which is no matter whether you're going to win or not, but there are top tier people who are going to review your application, right? And so that's going to be a very good opportunity to make yourself known and to make your technology and your work known. One of the goals of this prize is to stimulate innovation and encourage more scientists to consider an entrepreneurial path. Do you have any advice for those who might be thinking about commercializing their work? So I think my major advice is to be resilient and persistent. It's a very long journey. If you have an academic background as I do, you're playing in a different game. And so you need to become humble and think that you're going to learn in the process. The learning curve is steep, but it's also very exciting. So I think the, the most important recommendation I would give is also to, to remain positive and to think that eventually this is one of the major ways to have a real impact in the world and on people and on society. Now, I've been fortunate enough to have seen you present your work, but I'd love to have you explain to the audience what you did and how you came up with this idea, and also what you mean by interfacing your technology with food and plants. My work is, a, in a few words, is a silk-based coatings that can either extend the shelf life of perishable food or can be used to deliver biofertilizers, which are microorganisms that help the health of plants. My background is really in biopolymers, biomaterials, and the use of silk as a technical material, so not only a fiber anymore. When it comes to my journey, I've always been using silk since my undergrad, but eventually I arrived at Tufts University in the silk club, and that lab is a very good goal club. So we were also having a food competition, and the goal was to, to cook with silk. And I was in Switzerland before and just by traveling and I saw a chocolate fondue coated strawberry. So I had the idea to do the same with silk. I did it and not much happened uh, because in reality, silk, once it's in a, in a liquid format, as we call it, it simply makes it very transparent thin films around things. I kept doing it and nothing really happened. So I left the strawberries on my bench and then I came back 
One week later, and what I figure out is that the half of the strawberries were all gone and the other one were preserved. And that's how the connection between biomaterials and food started for me. Now, if your work is successful, is it possible that obtaining the raw material silk that you need might become rate limiting? And have you considered the possibility of generating silk in the lab? That's a good point. So at the moment, there is enough wasted silk and silk that is not textile grade that can be used and upscale and upgraded to become a technical materials for food and agriculture. In reality, if this technology is really gonna become very successful and uh, we find more and more opportunities, we, we need to think about boosting up silk production. One of the beauty of producing silk is that you plant trees. And so we just need to find land where it makes sense and economically and also from a climate and agricultural perspective to plant mulberry trees and then we can start sericulture there. Eventually, we want to move away from the silk that has been engineered for textile application and we want to be able to design our own silk. So I think this would be the real challenge and the real opportunity for the future. So how can we design our own structural protein and how we can make the process of synthesizing it scalable? Does the silk coating affect the plants in any way, like reducing their ability to photosynthesize? And also, could it affect people consuming these products at all? So the work of my lab and the work of the company Mori has mostly been focused on post-harvest technology, which means that, for example, if we target leafy greens, we harvest the greens and then we apply the coating. Can it affect the metabolism of plants? Yes, it can. And actually, this is something we want to control and regulate the post-harvest physiology, so the, the decay of the, of the leaf in this case. It's not going to affect photosynthesis because the coating is very transparent, so light goes through it. It may become a limiting factor for the diffusion of CO2, although I never studied that in the lab. The other thing that may affect is stomata. So stomata are these valves that are typically on the back of the leaf that regulate perspiration of plants, so the, the water release. And so it might have an effect there, but again, it can be a positive impact because we might simply decrease the amount of water that evaporates from the leaf over time. For the pre-harvest technology, we never studied it, but I think it's something that is on our radar for sure. And as far as uh, taste is concerned, does it change the taste of, of plants at all? And can it affect uh, digestion in humans? In my own experience, it doesn't affect taste, but of course, taste is very personal. So. Other people may have a different opinion, but typically the coating is so thin that you really don't feel it, you don't taste it. When it comes to human health, there's a big history in the usage of silk within the human body. There are suture thread, but there are also FDA approved devices that are in the body. Typically there's a replacement for a vocal fold that has been recently FDA approved. And so we know that the material is well tolerated by the body and is non-toxic. Benedetto, where do you believe that your work could have the greatest impact uh, in society? So I think at the moment, if we just focus on the food coating technology, the impact would be in extending the shelf life of commercial products. So it's going to be making fresh food available for longer time. Uh, the impact that I would like to see is that this corresponds to making fresh food available also, for example, in places where fresh food is typically not sold, like the food desert. When it comes to other parts of the world, so in part of the world where the supply chain sees food losses at the beginning of it, 
My hope is that the technology can extend the shelf life of food for growers so that they have more time post-harvest to sell their fresh produce. When it comes to the seed coating technology, I believe the major impact is to make soils that are currently non-fertile or have a very low yield, to make them fertile again or increase in the yield. I think this would be key for a more sustainable and precise agriculture. The final question I have for you, Bernadetto, is what are your future plans, uh, both for your research and for the products that you've commercialized? For my research, I plan to keep working on the potential impact of biopolymers and biomaterials on food and agriculture. We want to develop skills in developing delivery within plants and also in uh, further technology to fortify the food they were eating. When it comes to the commercial product, I would really like the companies that I'm funding and I'm nurturing to focus about having a real impact on the planetary health and on the health of people. So of course, company needs to make money. We need to do it responsibly. And so we need to focus in the long term specifically on product that can really have a positive impact on, on people. Well, Benedetto, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. And our thanks to the Bioinnovation Institute for sponsoring this interview. I'm Sean Sanders. Thank you for listening. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.